Welcome to Our Jewish Roots. The Word of God has given us examples of faith that have shaped virtually every aspect of the believer's life today. Where would we be without the examples of Noah, Abraham, and Isaac, David, and ultimately that of Yeshua, Jesus? Faith is woven into the fabric of America as well. From the Pilgrims to John Adams, to Patrick Henry and George Washington, God's providential hand remained highly esteemed and honored above all. Faith unshakable, faith unstoppable, faith of our fathers. We are so glad you've joined us today. I am David Hart. I'm Kirsten Hart. I am Jeffrey Seif. Hey, let's talk about faith, that assurance of things hoped for, that looking over the horizon. Isn't that important? It is. And it's hard sometimes, though, because we don't know what lies ahead, but that's what God is calling us to have faith in, that he is guiding us to the unseen. And peace about it. Yes, you know, that walk, step by step. You know, Abraham did it. Uh, different people do it different days, different ways. If you have your Bible, open it to Genesis 11. It is about Abraham and his faith. Dr. Seif teaches about it right now. Let's go there. Well, there you go, and here it is. Can you see that? Probably not. God does. At least he says he does. This is a mustard seed. And you might recall in the Matean Gospel, Matthew 13 and verses 31 and 2, Jesus is on record likening the kingdom of God to a little mustard seed. Starts off as something not very much, but then it grows into something rather substantial. And so it is with faith. People talk about a seed of faith just a little bit can make a big difference. And we see that going back to the beginning of the Bible, and we see it at the end. Faith at work in the Word, and then we're going to see faith at work in the world as well for people to take the Word and they live it out. I want to begin in the book of beginnings, the book Bereshit in Hebrew, it's Genesis, and in chapter 11, there's a story here of a man who takes those baby mustard seed steps. We're told in chapter 11, verse 31, there was a man, Abram, Avram, who goes on a journey. He leaves with his, some of his family members. He leaves Ur of Chaldee, which would be modern Kuwait. And he goes on a journey along the Fertile Crescent. He's driven by an impulse that today we call faith. He didn't know where he was going. And the reason why I say he didn't know where he was going is because when you get to Hebrews chapter 11, therein in verse 8, the author says he didn't know where he was going, but he knew who he was following. There is this pressing against uncertainty. People that walk by faith don't necessarily have a clear vision where they're going, but they have some sense of who they're following, which is why, by the way, I liken uh, this to sheep following a shepherd. Sheep aren't known for great vision. They can just get a blurry view of the shepherd, and the shepherd knows where he's going. 
And so it is with us sometimes when we think of our own lives, we don't know where we're going, but we follow that shepherd into the future. Well, here we're told that Terah took Abraham, his son, and Lot, and they went on a journey from Ur of Chaldee into Syria. And there they hunkered down for a season until such time they were prompted to go further. Some of them went further into Eretz Kenaan, the land of Canaan. But it's from there where Abram hears, listen, that's not the homeland. You're, you're almost there, but you got to go uh, that extra step. And he does. And, and the verses are very famous. I trust it'll be familiar to you. In the 12th chapter, verse 1, Lech lecha, go, go. Uh, then the Lord said to Abram, get going from your land and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. My heart's desire is to make you a great nation to bless you, to make your name great, so you will be a blessing. And people have been going ever since. And I mention that because we find this at the beginning of the Bible, and we find this at the beginning of America as well. People that embark on a journey that's wrought with perils, but possibilities as well. You have to take the risk. You have to be willing to throw the dice and do it, and they did. But it wasn't just luck. It wasn't just happenstance. It was providence. And we see that in the writing of the fathers of our culture, that they were looking to the Lord to guide them into the future. We see it not just with Abram, we see it elsewhere in the Bible as well. Uh, you can recall the story of Jacob, how he leaves. Uh, Jacob lived under the tutelage of his mother principally, uh, but then it was time to go. Things deteriorated with his brother Esau, and he goes to Syria, and you might recall that he has a wrestling match uh, that, uh, you know, he's alone at night and the musings of his head, and he gets a vision that God promises that he's going to be with him. Similarly, when he returned uh, from Syria with his family now, um, he will have these stirrings and these wrestlings and so forth. It just is what it is. Walking by faith isn't easy. It takes faith to walk by faith. I mean, that goes without saying, but it's much easier to say it than it is to do it. If you can think for a moment uh, of those who first came here to this new world, I think of Cologne, uh, as he was known. We know him as Columbus, particularly, and uh, they were ready to mutiny, you know, that they had gone out, the winds died, they hadn't found land, and, and it looked like all was lost. But there's that voice pressing on, no, no, it, I know what's out there. And thank God he didn't turn back. Uh, I think of those that, that made the passage from the old world to the new world. You know that in uh, Europe, uh, uh, believers that weren't denominational Christians particularly had problems with the state because they didn't come under state control of religion. They wanted differentiation from that. The Puritans uh, thought that the English church was too much full of the British crown 
and, and not full enough of, of biblical faith and virtue, and they wanted to distinguish themselves from that, and it caused tensions with the powers that be in that culture. And uh, they were doggedly determined, however, and people came over to a new world. They wanted to escape the difficulties that were imposed upon them, but in coming here then, they confronted the difficulties associated with carving out a new world, and they met it with faith. And that's the principal point that I want to talk to you about here. You know, when I think of the faith of our fathers, you've heard me to say previous to this particular program in this particular series that for me, faith is less about creeds and deeds as much as it is an impulse, something interior to the person that wants to believe God. It doesn't uh, translate specifically to my way of thinking into various doctrinal statements, and I don't want to minimize the importance of theology, but there's that raw faith, there's that daring to believe, there's looking to the Lord. There is uh, looking through the darkness with piercing eyes, believing that even though there are difficulties at present, there's hope for a future. Speaking of making a voyage, is an old Dutch proverb that God doesn't promise us an easy voyage, but he promises a safe harbor. Sometimes there's some high winds and high seas, and we have to deal with it on the way to that harbor. And I know that those who forged out uh, a, a nation here in early America had to deal with that. Those that forged out an early church had to deal with that. Those that forged out uh, their way in the biblical pages had to deal with it as well, and so do we. But with our faith, little as it is, we sow it, we believe God, and then we grow into something bigger by virtue of our so doing. Our resources this week, two books by Christian historian David Barton. First, America's Godly Heritage. This book details what the Founding Fathers intended for America and what can be done to return to its original guiding philosophy. Or the bulletproof George Washington. In this riveting account of God's providence and protection of the young soldier who later became our first president. Contact us for more information. Join us right now for additional content that is only available on our social media sites, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Visit our website, levitt.com, for the current and past programs, the television schedule, tour information, and our free monthly newsletter, which is full of insightful articles and news commentary. View it online, or we can ship it directly to your mailbox every month. Also on our website is the online store. There, you can order this week's resource, or you can always give us a call at 1-800-WONDERS. Your donations to Our Jewish Roots help us to support these organizations as they bless Israel. Please remember we depend on tax-deductible donations from viewers like you. For many, a trip to the Holy Land is the dream of a lifetime. The Bible truly comes alive as you see the sites where so many biblical events happened. Come on a Zola tour to see Israel and Petra. See the land of the Bible for yourself. Contact us to reserve your dream of a lifetime. One of the places we take you on our tour, which is actually, we say, one of our favorite spots. We Everywhere we go everywhere. is our favorite spot. But we take you to the Dead Sea where you get in it and experience it. I know you love the mud there. Oh, <laughs> we get there 
And one of my first things is I need to get right down to the water and I jump and they have these pools of Dead Sea mud and I plaster it everywhere, probably just like you do. Have you done it? Once. <gasps> really? Yes. Do you mud up? Do you get all mud? Once. I've been there <laughs> dozens and dozens of times once. That's one of those things you gotta do once. Oh, right. see, and I love it, I do it every time. And I have to admit, yes, I drop a few shekel on uh, the Dead Sea products, because I love it, I bring it home. And it's what I use during the rest of the year. You know, it's great to get away, uh, to vacate, actually. And people go on a vacation, it comes from the word to vacate. It means to get away from the work a day and get inspired. That's doubly true when you vacate to Israel. And if you can't get there, you know, we love to bring it all to you. And I wanna ask you, please help us to do it. Uh, uh, we're in the Holy Land, we make TV there, we bring you guests from there, we take you to places there. And I hope that you would think that, you know, there's 168 hours in a week. When you watch this program, you're vacating. We're looking to take you away from your everyday workaday world and get you into the biblical world. If you find value in that, in as much as Kirsten drops a few dollars on Dead Sea products, uh, drop some dollars to help us get this product to market, please. Your contributions also help us produce these dramatic reenactments. Now let's go back in time to 1776 to learn more about the divinely inspired journey of Columbus. Good day, Betsy. Good day, sir. I'm humbled all the more when you remind me of those who've gone before us. The pilgrims you mentioned, a gritty lot, risking hazard of fortune as they did to come to a foreign land. But they were only following the lofty efforts of others who preceded them, mostly for godly reason. Others, sir? The discovery of a new world in the year 1492 of our Lord was, I believe, a benchmark on behalf of our Christian faith. Hear now the words of Mr. Christopher Columbus. He may have not landed on our shores, but he considered his journey to be divinely inspired. I prayed to the most merciful Lord about my heart's great desire, and he gave me the spirit and the intelligence for the task. It was the Lord who put into my mind the fact that it would be possible to sail to the Indies. There's no question that the inspiration was from the Holy Spirit, a strong and clear testimony from the books of the Old Testament, from the Gospels, and from the Epistles, encouraging me continually to press forward. I had no idea. His journey was actually driven by godly pursuit. Yes, Betsy. And he faced great opposition, even risking his long-standing reputation to fulfill the Lord's calling. Columbus continues. Since things generally came to pass that were predicted by our Saviour, Jesus Christ, we should also believe that this particular prophecy will come to pass. I offer the Gospel text, Matthew 24-25, in which Jesus said that all things would pass away, but not his marvelous word. Jesus affirmed that it was necessary 
that all things be fulfilled that were prophesied by himself and by the prophets. By the prophets? Mr. Columbus was referring to... Uh, Isaiah. Yes, he refers to Isaiah specifically. Here, yes, here. Isaiah goes into great detail in describing future events and in calling all people to our holy faith. For the execution of our journey, I did not make use of intelligence, mathematics, or maps. It is simply the fulfillment of what Isaiah had prophesied. Sir, I cannot say in all honesty that my motives are as pure or as lofty as were those of Mr. Columbus. Betsy, none of us can say with certainty what tomorrow brings. It is our faith that sustains. I continue. No one should fear to undertake any task in the name of our Savior. If it is just, and if the intention is purely for his holy service. The working out of all things has been assigned to each person by our Lord. Betsy, just like Columbus, we have no mathematics or maps to guide us through this journey. All we have are needles and thread, journals and scripture. May our intentions remain pure and for his holy service. We're used to thinking of Christopher Columbus as a sea captain without paying attention to the captain of his soul. He had an interior world that was informed by biblical worldview. We know it because he wrote it. David Barton brings it to us. Goodness gracious, Columbus had a rich faith and David Barton brings it out so brilliantly. Let's go to him now. David, my Jewish friends refer to him as Cologne, AKA Columbus, in part because we want to claim him on our side. There's an argument that he and others on the voyage were of Jewish extract. That might be true, but he definitely had a Judeo-Christian worldview, underlying Christian, correct? It's interesting. People today know very little about Columbus, except they think he's a bad guy. And so we've seen eight to 10 years now of tearing Columbus statues down. It's significant that there were more than 600 statues erected to Columbus over the last 500 years. I don't know of any individual in the world who has so many statues erected. So there was a period of time when we believed he's a really good guy. Today, we think he's a terrible guy, but I have not talked to a single person today who knows the history of Columbus. They just know he's a bad guy because that's what they've been told. Interesting thing about Columbus is he made four voyages, and those four voyages involved thousands of people. They kept records. There were doctors, there were priests, there were colonists, there were all sorts of people. They wrote letters back, they had memoirs, they have diaries, they have journals. There's lots of original source material to know exactly what kind of a person Columbus was. We don't study that today. But if you go back to the early 1800s, there's a literary figure named Washington Irving, done a lot of literary writing, a lot of kids studied him in AP literature in school. He was made an ambassador to Spain. When he went to Spain, while he was there as a U.S. ambassador, he spent a lot of time in the libraries in Spain studying the original materials of Columbus. He did this three-volume set in 1828. It's one of the most extensive writings ever done on Columbus, primary source documents. 
But it's like this. This is Columbus's writings from his own son. So these are Columbus's papers handed down to his son. Um, this is actually part of Columbus's own. This, he did this between his third and fourth voyage, and it was done in his own hand in, in Latin, and it's been translated into, into English. But there's so many records to know exactly what this guy was about. What's the title of that one? This is called Christopher Columbus's Book of Prophecies. That's incredible to even think Book of Prophecies, that title. Christopher Columbus. Here, here's the deal with Columbus. His, his name means, means Christ bearer, and he took that very literally. He believed that Christ had commissioned him to take the gospel to the lands. As he was reading through the scriptures, and, and this actually documents all the scriptures he was reading, he, he said he went through the entire Bible and the Holy Spirit spoke to him verse after verse and he documented it. So I, I, I'm not a when Latin he, reader. He, he said the Holy Spirit spoke to him. That's his language. That's, that's his language. Yours. And, and, and I, I'm not a Latin, but I can tell that that says Ezekiel and that's Ezekiel chapter 27, and Ezekiel chapter 28, and Ezekiel chapter... And, and what he does is he writes the verses in here the Holy Spirit jumped out to him. And, and there's verses like in Isaiah that talks about the light needs to go to the Isles of the Sea. He said, the Isles of the Sea. God's showing me people need the gospel out there. And so he, he literally was a Christ-bearing gospel. Now, people say, oh, but he, he's enslaved. He's genocide. He's the first sex trafficker, etc. No. It's interesting that he had conflicts with natives eventually. On his first voyage, he discovered the Taino tribe, and they had great relations. They were good friends. And the Taino said, oh, by the way, you may like us, but there's another tribe called the Canaanites or the Caribs, and Canaan is where we get the word cannibal. Caribs get the word Caribbean. He said, they're our enemies. They eat us. And it's like Columbus said, no, nah, no, no, no. This is 1492. We're way too civilized to have cannibals. They wouldn't do that. So he left on his first journey. Some of his guys stayed behind. While he was gone, they were attacked by, by the cannons. They were killed. They were eaten. He got back. He found out that these guys are real. And so he goes looking for the cannons. And so he goes to war against those people because they're killing his friends. They're killing other native tribes. And he kind of virtually exterminates the cannibals. And today we call that a genocide. Well, that's kind of like us taking out ISIS. Nobody calls that a genocide. I mean, if you're that barbaric of people, so he saved native tribes. He really brought some civilization there, had great relations throughout his, his time with them. And we just don't hear that story today. No, in fact, there's a sidebar to it. When he's given a land grant from the crown for Jamaica, the charter for it was specific. There's no litmus test for race or creed for those to be part of the, the new world in Jamaica. He was making room for Jewish people that were fleeing, and uh, he was very open like that, and he people was. tell a different story about him. Well, it's interesting. He, he lived at a time when the Crusades were still pretty active, and I, I see a lot of American history textbooks today talk about the Christian Crusades, 15 to 17, however many they count. Nobody talks about the Muslim Crusades, 548 on the Muslim side. And Columbus had, as a young man, been involved in some of those attacks where the Muslims were attacking Christians and trying to subdue Christians. And they went through the Holy Land, taking so much of the Holy Land. And so he act, people today say, oh, he was all into greed and gold. Well, he actually told the king and queen, he said, any prophets I have in this thing, I want to go to the conquest of Jerusalem. Because he said, I've talked to, to the, all the theologians and I've read their works and 
They say Jesus is going to be back in 155 years. Now, who knows why that, but that's what he says. And he says, we need to get the Holy Land back in the hands of God's people, Jews and Christians, before the return of Christ. So he, he's motivated to see the Holy Land back in the hands of, of biblical people. That's the ethos of his own culture, certainly in the Iberian Peninsula. They had just reconquered That's it. That's right. Granada had fallen and then opens up the new world. There is this wanting to take it all back. And, and it's that sense of Jesus is going to return. He doesn't need to return to a place of conflict where the Muslims are going to try to, to kill Jews and Christians. He needs to come back to a safe place. And whatever we think about his thinking on that, his heart was really good on it. He wanted to do something good for the Lord. Well, you know, in that regard, Columbus and the people that watch our program have in common, both are interested in Israel, mm -hmm. in the uh, Jewish roots, the Holy Land. And uh, you do such a marvelous job of bringing us back to the holy inspiration behind the founders of our own culture. And it is very clear when you read the originals that it was a biblical and a Judeo-Christian inspiration. And as you point out, that the heritage of, of Columbus seems to be Jewish as well. And so you have a Jewish-Christian connection there. Yeah, I'm just struck by it all. Now, you have one more book you didn't mention there. Well, this is a program. It's P.T. Barnum, Barnum and Bailey Circus, the famous circus. And as part of the circus, they had acts reenacting what Columbus did. And so Columbus was such a hero to previous generations when we actually read his writings and knew who he was, that this is for all the kids that come to the circus to learn about Columbus, what a great guy he is, and what a contrast today when we're tearing down the statues. But this is just shows that, that the pop culture of that day, Columbus really was a hero. You know, it's, uh, it, it's fascinating. We're, we're propping him up in one generation, tearing him down in another tragic. We just lose sight of the faith of our fathers. We don't even know what the origins are all about. Last words yours. And most important thing is truth. We hear a lot of narratives today. Here's truth. Here's eyewitness accounts. Here's accounts of his own handwriting. Here's accounts of previous generations. Knowing the truth is the most important thing about Columbus. Yes, and the truth will set us free. We're out of time, but we have you a lot more. Looking forward to this series as it unfolds. Thank you, David. Thanks, Jeff. It really is amazing the written proof that David Barton has brought to the series. I know there's a lot more that he brings in, in the next programs, but wow, pretty amazing. I was just blown away. As you can say, you can't disprove proof. I, it's literal writings that he has, and it's just, uh, I'm so glad that he's been our guest because it's amazing what he's literally brought to the table. You know, when I'm not here doing this, you know, I serve as a Bible college seminary professor. And in academia, we talk about primary source data, the principal evidence, not, not the spin on it, just the evidence, and it's important to bring it forth, and, and, and he does. Well, here's my question for you real quick. I know we don't have a lot of time right now because the interview with David Barton was so wonderful, but here's my question. We have Columbus, who we've talked about today, and then you talked about Abraham, the father of our faith. They both went on unknown journeys. Is it okay to put them kind of together in the, in the same boat, should I say? Thank you. That was good. That's very well, very well stated. Of course, uh, Abraham went over sand. Uh, Columbus went over sea. But at the end of the day, the point's so very true. You just walk into an uncertain future and believe God, and he leads. He did it with them. He does it with us. We'll do it with you. And we have more to come next week. Join us next week, more of Faith of Our Fathers. We end our program today with a song from our founder, Zola Levitt. And a word from the scripture. Sha'alu, shalom, Yerushalayim. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem.